Well, hey, good morning. Whether you, whether you know this or not, or whether it seems right to you or not, church is the adventure that you were meant to live. And that's what this little book of Titus is about. Take your Bible, turn to the book of Titus. We're in a series of messages on Titus, and we're going to review that a little bit. But I, I want to tell you that, that up front, here's the big idea. Church is the adventure that you were meant to live. So God has a plan in the world today, and his plan is to advance the good news, the story of the good news of Jesus around the world in clusters of Jesus followers, small, medium, and large, that we call like local churches. And this is, it's a little bit of, of an adventure. It is, it was, it's fulfilling, it's satisfying, and it's the adventure that you were meant to live. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I like to read outside magazine, even when I can't get outside. And recently I read an outside magazine article about a world-class whitewater rafter whose name was Hendrik um, uh, Coetzee. So this guy was always seeking an adventure, always seeking an adventure in more and more thrilling waters. He kayaked whitewater all over the world. He loved especially to kayak in rivers in Africa because they offered him, according to Outlaw Magazine, unparalleled challenge. Coetzee called his adventures missions, and he wanted to float a great river in Uganda. And so on to December the 7th in 2007, he was floating this great river in Uganda with this whitewater when he was attacked by a crocodile. In the, in the Outside Magazine, here's how they wrote it. An eyewitness whose name was Stukesbury, he wrote this eyewitness account. Unlike the surface swimming crocs that paddlers are accustomed to, this one attacked from the depths, rising silently and swiftly like a trout and striking specifically at the human form. The entire episode lasted 10 seconds, and they never caught another glimpse of either Coetzee or the croc, which, based on the approximate length of his head, was at least 15 feet long. A croc of that size would be 2,000 pounds and would have taken Coetzee to the bottom of the river, life jacket and all, rolled him there until he drowned, he likely would have lost consciousness in the first few seconds as the beast clamped down on his chest and neck with 5,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. Once he saw the croc, Stukesbury says, and he nearly breaks down in the telling, I lost all hope in that instance. Now, now Hendrik Cosey obviously died that day, but he had been keeping a journal, and his last journal entry read, I need to believe that there's more to this world than we know. I need to believe that there's more to this world than we know. I need to believe that there is magic out there. I cannot believe these things blindly, though. Maybe that's why I had to do this mission. I had to prove to myself that there's more to the world than we know. And I'm not judging, you know, the merits of his adventure at all. But I, but I am saying this. God made us to long for an adventure. And the adventure that he talks about in his word is the adventure of the advance of the gospel. It is an adventure that goes forward in our time through Jesus clusters like churches. We're talking about churches here around the world. Churches like ours, churches like others, the gospel advance is, a, is an adventure. It may not seem that way to you. And like, like somebody once said, if the Christian life isn't exciting to you, you're not doing it right. If the Christian life isn't exciting to you, if it's not an adventure, you're not doing it right. And, and here's an example. Take the Bible anywhere. In particular, take the gospels. 
and then open them up. Take an epistle like Titus, open it up. At first, it seems pretty harmless and innocent. Start to read it really carefully, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, obey what it says, and things will start to get really interesting. This is what we are often not doing. We kind of hold the Bible at uh, arm's length and we, and we sort of sanitize its message and, and we sort of, um, uh, we, we miss the adventure of it. So, we, so what we want to do today is we want to kind of recap uh, Titus. Titus has three chapters, uh, a little under 50 verses. We're calling it the little red book of church, uh, primer on church or or, or, or better, maybe we could also say, like, this is the handbook about how to live the adventure. And the first thing he says in chapter 1 of Titus Review is the first thing a church needs to do is to recognize godly leaders. And this was on the island of Crete and the Mediterranean. Paul, the apostle, had sent his helper Titus, this younger man, to Crete in order to establish and strengthen the churches and bring order to the churches and the first thing he said is a church, for a church to be a church, to be a good church, for the adventure to begin, you want to identify godly leaders. And then the next thing he said in the second chunk of that is you want to reject ungodly leaders or disqualified leaders. You want to resist the false teaching. And then the next chapter, Titus chapter 2, it kind of lists the various groups of people in the church from older men and older women and younger women and younger men. And, and then it has a little piece about Titus and his teaching. And then it talks about bond servants. And this is the, the whole thing in chapter two. This is where we are today. And it says something similar about all of them. It says that in order for to live the adventure of church, if you will, in order for church to be good, in order for church to be what God wants it to be, it, it, a good church depends on the, the moral and character qualities of the believing members, the people that make up the church, the older women, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, the workers, if you will, if we can say it that way, the employees and how they, and, and all this is like there to have exemplarily Christ-like character. They believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for their sins, according to the scriptures, rose again. They believed this, salvation by grace through faith, they have the Holy Spirit living in them, so they're growing in Christ-like character, and they always have, a, in the back of their mind, or maybe in the front of their minds, they always have the unbelieving world in mind. Because over and over again in Titus, you see always it says, behave this way because the world is watching. Or this is the character you ought to have because in this way you beautify the doctrines about, about Jesus. And then there's, uh, so there, the message of the, of the church is to take this message of the gospel to the world, people that don't believe, the message of salvation by grace through faith alone, the simple good news message that God would reconcile himself to a sinful world that deserves to go to hell by the death and the righteous life and death of Christ. That's a message. The message that we give to people, right? You know this. The message that we give to people, the message that we believe that makes us Christian is the message that our self-righteousness will always fail us and that our only hope with God is the righteousness of Christ, which he showed in his death and burial and resurrection. And when we believe, then the righteousness of Christ is put upon our account, right? And our sin is put on the account of Jesus. And if somebody said, you know, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death that we deserve to die, this is the message. But the method then, according to Titus, you're going to see it more and more as it builds toward a crescendo at the end of the letter, is the method is 
people with this kind of character who believe this doing good works. And it's just almost, it just seems almost over simple. We believe and God does his work in us and we do good works and this is the message we take and that's the adventure that we were made to live and there's something, it's a bit dangerous, we're gonna get pushed back, it's gonna be easy to get off task, there, there, it, it, there's a risk involved, not everybody's gonna understand, sometimes we're gonna be tempted to do something else, but this is the adventure that we were meant to live. And this is what Titus is saying. And so we've studied through in chapter two and we talked a bit you know, about the, 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 the godly qualities of character of the older men there in, in chapter two and verse two and the older women in chapter two and verse three and the curriculum, if you will, that they're to teach the young women in verses four and five. And we sort of stopped in the middle of that. And some of you that are young women, you might be thinking, I would like to love my husband and love my children, but I don't have a husband or children. So like, what do you do then? Well, maybe that God has uh, led, was gonna lead you to do that. I had, a, there was a girl in our church uh, years ago and her name was Carrie. And Carrie was a good Christian girl from a good Christian family. And she was a little worried about, she feel like she's getting older because she was like, you know, 19. And, um, and she thought, am I ever going to marry? Is anybody ever going to want to marry me? Am I ever going to? And, and there aren't any really, you know, the godly guys are, are, are around me are, are not attractive to me. And, the, and, the, and the, the attractive guys around me are not godly. You ever see that happen? And, and so when is a guy who's attractive to me and godly going to come into my life? How does that work? I, I recommended a book. I remember that this girl humbly came to me and she said, can I, can I have the name of that book? I want to read it. And I, I remember my heart as a pastor going out to her and thinking, God, you help her. Whether that means she's going to marry or not marry, I don't know, but she's seeking you. You help her, Lord. I remember thinking, God, you help that girl, please. She's seeking you. She wants a godly husband. Her computer broke down. This, was this bad or good? This is one of those stories. Her computer broke down. You're supposed to go, oh. Let's do that together. Her computer broke down, oh. So she took it to get it fixed and it was gonna be a lot of money. The guy was looking at her computer uh, there. Um, he had to, in order to fix it, he had to look through the contents of her computer. While he was looking through the contents of her computer, he noticed what kind of a girl she was. He noticed her habits of devotion. He noticed her personal moral purity. He noticed her love for the Lord. And he was a guy who knew the Lord and loved the Lord, but they didn't know each other. But while he was working on, his on her computer, he said to his friends, do not let this girl have this computer until I see her. So she came one day and she said, is my computer done? And they said, I think so, but you can't have it yet. You have to come back. And she was very confused. And she went away thinking, wow, my life, you know, my computer isn't working and they fixed it and they won't let me have it. This is not good. But it was good because the young man that wanted to meet her, they're married and they have kids. And every once in a while I call that church and guess who the church secretary is? It's Carrie. Maybe she's not anymore because her life got so busy. I don't think she's a church secretary anymore. But when I go back to that church, I see her beautiful Christian family. God heard my prayers. God heard her prayers 
If you would like to have a husband, if you'd like to have a family, if you'd like to have a wife, if you'd like to have a family, that's a legitimate thing, then you come to me, I will pray for you. I, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding about that. Just tell the Lord. And realize this, if that would be good for you, he will not withhold that from you. No good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. There was a, there was a woman, and her name was Edith, and she so wanted to be married. Um, Edith was, had a powerful desire, actually all her life, she had a powerful desire just to be a, a wife. And she had another powerful desire, and that desire was to be a missionary. But she would never be a wife, and she would never be a missionary. Edith Clarkson was her name. She decided, well, if I've been, because she was disqualified to be a missionary because of a, a health problem, she, the, the Canadian government, she's from Toronto, the Canadian government, she got some training, and the Canadian government sent her to a very remote western part of Ontario where she was a teacher among the, log, the families that were working in the logging camps. And she hadn't been there very long before she thought, my goodness, I'm so alone here. There are no godly men anywhere here. There are ungodly men. And there are, there are very few, if any, Christian friends. I feel so lonely. She was very, very lonely. As a matter of fact, during that, she was a bit of a poet. She loved to write. She was a good writer and a poet. And during that time in her life, she thought, I feel so powerfully lonely. I guess this is what just God called me to loneliness and to suffer kind of unpaid and unrewarded and unloved and unknown. And if you recognize these words, I'm quoting a song she wrote called, So Send I You to Labor, Unrewarded, Unloved, Unpaid, Unknown. There's a famous missionary hymn, pretty morose, a pretty sad hymn. But that's how she felt. She felt alone and she felt unloved and she felt isolated and she wanted to be married and she wanted to be a missionary. After a while, she realized, even though she wasn't a conventional missionary, she really was being used of the Lord to give the gospel to people. As she began to uh, mature, she became a school teacher. She taught in Toronto. She bought a little place up in the Canadian Shield in the Severn River. She had to actually had to drive for hours to get there, and then she had to take a boat for another couple of hours to get to this place that she bought. And she summered there alone, and she would write poems and hymns and her hymns were used, especially in missionary endeavor. She wrote beautiful missionary hymns. She wrote this famous song, So Send I You, and other beautiful missionary hymns that were used in the Urbana Missionary Conference. She was powerfully used of the Lord all throughout her life. She wrote a book about being single and having unfulfilled sexual desires, unfulfilled sexual longings. Wrote a very candid and helpful book about that. And then way, way up in years, she went to be with the Lord. But before she died, she wrote another hymn. And the hymn was to tell the rest of the story of the first hymn that she wrote. Her first hymn was, So Send I You to Labor Unrewarded. And her last hymn was, So Send I You, and uh, by grace, fulfilling my life. So she basically, the last song was like, Yes, I was alone, but I had Christ and he was enough. And yes, I was alone, but I was not unrewarded. And so for you, it may be, uh, if you're a young woman, that you'll pray and God will answer your prayer and you will marry in the faith and have a beautiful family and you will glorify God that way. Or it may be that you'll pray for something and God will say, that's not what I'm going to give you. 
but the gift that I'm going to give you is actually greater than the one you ask for. And, and somewhere in between all of us is where we all live. Am I right? So just that, before we move on to the next, I wanted to mention that because I wasn't able to last week and encourage that if you're a young woman and, you know, you tell your hearts and desires to the Lord and you tell him what it is that you desire and what you want and you trust him that he will give you what is really good for you. And for all of us in other ways, the same truth is important. When we go to the next section, you notice that um, he's talked to young men, but he only says one thing to young men, which is kind of interesting. It's one of those questions that would pop in your mind. Why is this? It's in verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then verse seven, Paul is speaking directly to Titus again about his teaching. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an op opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And then in verse nine, he begins to talk about bond servants. But let's go back and talk about young men. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you don't mind, I'll try to answer the question, why does he say so little to young men? You know, maybe because they're not that sharp and they can't handle that much material. But that's not it. That's not it. No, 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 that's not it. That's not it. The reason I believe is because he considers Titus in this group, I believe. I believe he considers Titus in the young man group. You know, when you're an old guy, anybody younger than you is a young man, right? Uh, we have a dear man in our church that's a bit older than I am. And every Sunday, he knows I love it when he says, hello, young man. Well, I'm not young, but I'm younger than him. So he considers me a young man, and that's why I like Dick Kinder. Anyway, um, <laughs> hello, young man, he says. And I like, I look for him every week. And I'm like, hi, Dick. And he says, hello, young man. I go, I love you. Yeah. Um, Paul was saying to Titus, you know, you're a young man. I think so. And then all the material in Titus chapter 1 is really kind of aimed at that. A young man could take the qualifications of an elder, and he could say, Lord, this is what I aspire. Whether I have the office of an elder, I would have the character of an elder. And so all of that material would be included. And then the likewise ties it to what went before it. And the, and the, and the, and the self-control, which is the one thing he says to young men in verse 6, is a very important thing because repeated four times there in the passage. It, it, and, and you know this, if you know the Bible, you know that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is it is the result of a person walking in the Spirit. So when you walk in the Spirit, and what is walking in the Spirit? Walking is a repeated thing. So repeatedly or habitually obeying the impulses of the Holy Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit is walking in the Spirit. That's really profound, so I'm going to say it again. Habitually obeying the impulses of the Holy Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit is walking in the Spirit, and it yields the fruit of the Spirit, and that's how you want to live. And this is over and over again what Paul is saying to Titus to teach to all the people. Teach them to be self-controlled. Not to just live by their own impulses, but to live by the impulses of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, because then you have the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that? It's in Galatians. When you, keep in, when you walk in step with the Spirit, and love, and peace, and, and joy, and so forth, and one of those qualities that that happens in our life when we're listening to when the spirit prompts us to obey the bible and the spirit empowers us to obey the bible and we obey that repeatedly is we have self-control in other words and and you need that i need that the heart of walking with the lord is is this self-control that the spirit gives and this is super important for young men so if you're a young man one of the things you want to ask god for is lord teach me how 
to hear the impulses of the Spirit in my life. Teach me how to obey those impulses in the power. And, they're, and they're, by the way, they're always going to be synonymous with the Bible. Spirit speaks the words of Scripture into our hearts. And, and, and that, we, we know that uh, because when you go to Romans 6, you notice it's talking about um, who you're going to be a slave to, whether you're going to be a slave to your dark impulses that lead to shame and death, or whether you're going to be uh, habitually obedient to the impulses that come from that form of doctrine which you were taught. That's what it says in Romans 6. But then when it gets to Romans 8, it talks about the Holy Spirit in a synonymous way. And other passages that talk about the Word of God and the Holy Spirit go parallel like that. In other words, what does it look like to walk in the Spirit is to habitually obey the Bible. The, when the Spirit of God reminds us about something in the Bible, we can count on the Spirit empowering us to obey that command of the Bible, and the fruit of that is going to be good. And you can kind of reverse engineer that. Look back and say, is the fruit of the Spirit of my life? Well, that's because God's been at work in my life. Or if the fruit of my life isn't good, that's because God's been speaking. I haven't been listening. I haven't been yielding to him. And, and so this is a beautiful and a very, very powerful thing. And then he goes immediately in verse 7 and talks to Titus about his life and about his teaching. And remind, let me remind you that over and over again, the theme here in this small book is the importance of the, of the informal talk and the formal teaching. And he comes back to this again, and he's saying, Titus, you know, the way that you put the church in order is by the way that you talk and teach. And then he says this about his teaching. He says, about his life, he says, you are to be a model of good works. Show yourself in all respects to be a pattern or a model of good works. In other words, you should always show what you tell. And this is true for all of us who teach anything. People are going to ignore what we say if they can't find it in our life. And they have every right to do that. But if we are able to show and tell, there's a power in that. You know, if you're a parent, your kids will more likely do what you do than what you say. Am I right? You say all the right things, and then they act like their mother. I mean, what's going on here, you know? I mean, then they act like you on your bad day. What's going on? You ever see your kid do something, you think, oh, my goodness, that's me at my worst. I never taught them to do that. I just showed them. There's a power in that example. Scriptures say that a lot of evangelists came to town one time, and he preached a powerful message on being honest. And not stealing. It was a very convicting and powerful message. And the next day he got on the bus and he paid his fare. And then when he went, got his change, he went back and he sat down and he counted his change and he realized he'd been given too much change. So he thought, well, I could keep it, but I thought that wouldn't be right. So he went back to the bus driver and he said, you gave me, it was actually a dime, you gave me a dime too much. And then what the bus driver said, I know. I heard your message last night. I just wanted to see if you practiced what you preached. Now, this is one of those cool stories, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But in, it was in the Daily Bread. And it says the, the bus driver goes back to hear him again because he practiced what he preached and he became a Jesus follower. I love stories like that. Truth is, what the Bible says is there's something powerful when we show people what we're teaching. Just be an example of that. And this is over and over again what this book is saying. How does church work? Well, here's how you live the adventure. You meet Jesus, and you let Jesus do the Jesus work in you, and then you show that to the world, and that's beautiful, and that's compelling, and that's magnetic, and that's attractive, and people can't ignore that. And that's all that he's saying. And he's saying to Titus then, in your teaching, I want you to teach with integrity. 
truthful teaching that that that, uh, that that is consistent with itself and his teaching should have dignity and this is interesting because this dignity he teaches with dignity is repeated in other places in the bible about others especially though about teaching pastors in second timothy chapter 2 it says this dignity here's the idea is that a person when they take it upon themselves to teach the bible there should be a weight to their life and their words there should be a weight or authority or gravitas or dignity you see this in this church i mean like before i came around i'm not talking about me i'm talking about leaders in the church and you know that when they get up on their feet and they say here's what we should do or here's what the bible teaches some men when they stand to their feet and they say that they have earned the right to be heard over their life you kind of watch their wife you watch their kitchen you watch their life you watch their work you watch the consistent pattern and you and you, you and they have a weight or a gravitas or a dignity about them and that's what paul is saying live in such a way that when you talk people don't go <laughs> yeah right loser you know you don't do that you're just talking but there should be a dignity there's a weight that's the way i would say to younger men and that is as a pastor you should never throw your weight around but you sh they should always feel your weight and what that means is this dignity and, th and that is that it's not that you're not humorous you know god forbid that a pastor would not be humorous it's not that you're not humorous it's that that behind your humor is a sobriety you're talking you might be talking funny about some really serious things but there's a weight to what you're saying this is this is heavy that's why i started the message today by saying church was the adventure you were meant to live i know what you're thinking you're thinking really i thought it was like disney world because that sounds a lot more exciting than what we do at church like i get why you would feel that way but what i'm trying to say is that oh no no the truth of god is a heavy thing it's a weighty thing it matters it's important it's 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 ultimate and when a preacher preaches the word of god there should be a sense of that when a teacher teaches the word of god a woman or a man teacher teaches the word of god there should be that dignity about it that you just go this is the word of god this is like ken's opinion he, there's a weight to it he's saying this is what the lord says you have no responsibility to obey my personal desires but you do have a responsibility to obey when we teach the word of god and we can prove that it was the word of god then you have a response there's a heaviness there's a weight there's a dignity there and then he says in in sound speech that cannot be condemned and so we do we don't have the right just to say i just say whatever i think or whatever i want to say or i say things however i want to say them not if you're a teacher of the bible you have no right to do that because you have to use sound speech that cannot be condemned words are powerful the bible says first peter when we open our mouth we should speak as the oracles of god and so there you have that interesting text there where he's speaking to young men and then to titus show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity in your teaching show dignity in your teaching show sound speech that cannot be condemned and then you have this refrain that just keeps coming up do you see it so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us do you see this every group he refers to he he has a refrain he says you you behave in this way because the lost world is watching and you don't want to discredit the gospel message so this is like we are always conscious that we have a responsibility to a world that doesn't know jesus yet we're always conscious about that 
And we're conscious that our teaching and a life that matches our teaching is a powerful means for the seed of the gospel to grow and a soil of good works and kind deeds and so forth. Now he goes to verses 9 and 10, and he says something which really brings questions to our mind, doesn't it? Bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. Like in our, in our sensitivities of our culture, does that raise any questions in your mind? Raise your hand if that raises questions in your mind. I knew you, bright people, both of you. Um, yeah, you, you just don't want to vote because you think I'm trying to trick you. Like, it's almost like saying, hey, you know, those of you that are slaves, be good slaves. They just don't seem American to me. Does it seem American to you? What? Like that, okay, that's the question is, maybe to put it in a bit more specific way, why doesn't Jesus condemn slavery and commend that we work toward like the abolition of slavery. Why doesn't, why does it seem like Paul, this apostolic writer, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling you don't rebel against the institution of slavery or try to overturn the institution of slavery, but here's how to be a good slave. That's a good question, don't you think? I think when you read the Bible, questions like that should come up. This comes up in my mind, um, which is interesting. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles doesn't doesn't over overtly command people to work toward the abolition of slavery, but it does reorder the relationship between slaves and masters. In, in, in other words, when people believe in Jesus, slaves and masters, they recognize that Jesus' economy has reordered the whole world when it comes to how you see this institution. He makes us all equal in Christ. It says so in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. When Paul speaks, he commands masters to treat their slaves humanely and to treat them with justice and fairness and to remember that they have to answer to their master in heaven. In Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 4, 1, Philemon 16 and 17. But it does not commend the overflow, overthrow of slavery. Why? I have two possible suggestions. One, because slavery was different in the first century than it is now. This isn't the final answer, but it is a piece. Slavery in this form is different than the, the, the racially based chattel slavery that we knew in uh, American history. Uh, racial oppression was the American experience. Nonetheless, every kind of slavery is like a social injustice, right? The second reason though, so in other words, one of the reasons why Jesus and the apostles may not have uh, advocated the overthrow of slavery immediately is because it was different. But a, but a bigger reason is because direct opposition to social injustice is not the mission of the church. Direct opposition to social injustice is not the mission of the church. The church has a greater mission that has the effect of reversing social injustice over time, and we'll completely do that in its consummated form. Am I making any sense? When Jesus comes back, he's going to make it all right. In between times, as we preach the gospel, and as we preach the gospel in the context of good works, then by the changing of the hearts of men and women, it moves toward the kingdom the way that it ought to be. The mission of the church is not to affect social justice. It's interesting to know that Jesus and Paul didn't teach that the job of the church was to press directly for social justice or to make social justice its mission. 
It'd be the result of the mission to change the hearts of people, but it's nowhere stated that social justice is the mission of the church, even though there are like moral evils and systemic social injustice matters that should burden Christians and Christians should work in the world and they may have a calling to do that. That's not the main mission of the church because the main mission of the church is larger than that. It's more powerful than that. It's deeper than that. If you make the gospel the, the mission of the church, then you'll have a measure of social justice and you'll have ultimate social justice in its consummated form in the kingdom of heaven. But if you make social justice the mission of the church, then you might have some social justice, but you will like walk away from the, you'll disobey the command of Jesus to go in the world and make disciples. Does it make any sense? And, and so social justice isn't the mission of the church. The gospel is the mission of the church. Now, there's a couple balancing truths I want to share. I hope I'm not losing you here. This is just kind of important. There are a couple of balancing truths that we should recognize when we say the mission of the church is the gospel. That's like, I'll give you an example. I, I uh, went out late one night uh, to, to go to a basketball game. Coming home from the basketball game, I promised Hope that I would return her video at Walmart. It was way out of the way, but I'm a great dad. Um, and so I go way out of the way, uh, and I'm not going to mention it, you know, so I'm going to bring it up. But I went way out of the way, and it was so, so cold that night, and I was driving so far out of the way, and driving, and it was almost 10 o'clock at night, and I'm like, the store's going to close, and I have no idea how to make this red box thing work. I couldn't get it to take the video, you know. Um, and so I just went, I just did this heroic thing. And, and I was cold, and I was just thinking, man, I can't wait to get home get in bed. Of my big, thick, warm bed with the covers, and, and, and I just was imagining being home. Are you feeling bad yet? Oh, Hope's teaching. She's not even here, here. And it's like, anyway, uh, so that, I wasted all that, you know, <laughs> sob story. So anyway, I get done, and I, I'm cutting across the parking lot. Now it's 10 o'clock at night, and it's cold, and I'm thinking about being home, and, and I saw something that ruined my evening. Here's a guy sitting there in a wheelchair, bundled all up with a dog like he's going to spend the night in the parking lot at Walmart just a few miles from my house really and I'd love to tell you some heroic story but he just ruined my night and I just drove home and got in bed but one of the things I thought was what should I have done what should I do I mean, I know you can say, well, there are reasons he made bad decisions or whatever, but still, a Christian who's devoted to loving like Jesus loved, even if you have the message of the gospel, there's a couple of factors that, that keep us from being like cold-hearted in our, well, the mission of the church isn't social justice. And here they are. Number one, I would say, you might think of others. Number one is there's the great commission and there's the great commandment and they work together the great commission to go into all the world and the great commandment to love god with all your heart and show it by loving one another is always in play in other words christians are bound by the commands of jesus to keep the commands of jesus and isn't there a bit of social justice kind of in that right how can you say i follow jesus i love jesus i obey jesus commands but i never feed the hungry I never love people that are, I never help people that are cold or poor or, or, or like single women that are being oppressed. I just kind of turn my back on them. You, you can't do that and call yourself a Jesus follower. So you see, there's a little mitigating factor there. There's a, there's a peace, there's a balance. It's balanced by, by that. It's a little bit like my daughter called me one day and she said that she was on the street, I think in Seattle. She and her husband were, were 
were, were walking down the street in Seattle, and they saw a man, an older man, and he was dressed like a woman. He had high heels on, and he had a short skirt on, and he had a wig on, and he had makeup on. But it was a man. It was an older man. And here he was walking down the street with a short skirt and high heels and, and a wig, and they looked at him, and you know, that's unusual, right? She, my daughter Holly, she loves the Lord. Her husband loves the Lord. She said right at that time, a carload of teenagers drove by, and they rolled their windows down, and they began to just mock this guy. And they began to just kind of catcall and cry out and mock him. And Holly said, I'd cr- I, I started to cry, and I looked over at Jesse, and he was crying. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus is also crying when people who wrestle with different kinds of sin, like we all do, brokenness of some kind, when people are treated in a way that's, that's unloving and unkind. And this isn't Christian, this isn't a Christian thing to do. It's not so Christian that you go on your Facebook, you know, and you write something mean about somebody who sins in a different way than you. That's not particularly a wonderful Christian expression of love or a redemptive act altogether. You might think you have a prophetic voice there, and maybe we could argue about that. But my point is this. The mission of the church is the gospel, but the mission of the church is the gospel that obeys the great commission along with the great commandment. And that that fact of loving and obeying the commands of Christ does kind of add a, a kind of a social justice piece there a little bit. And here's another one, and this one comes out of the text here. And we won't teach it now, we'll just refer to it, because in in the as the passage builds toward its powerful climax over and over again throughout the passage, it refers to good works. And what are good works, but really little acts of social justice? So if I buy a meal for this cold man, or if I make arrangements for him to be in a warm place, or if I help him get counseling or, 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 or job training or something like that, it was, that's a, one of the good, good works that, that, that make it's this dark soil in which the seed of the gospel takes root and grows and beautifies, beautifies the message of Christ. And so if the message of Christ kind of comes off looking like a quasi-political prejudice on our part, why would the world be, want to follow our Jesus? Right? But if the message of Christ looks like, here's the message of Christ, that he dies for broken sinners like me, hell-deserving broken sinners like me and like you, and he, 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 he causes us to have this kind of Christ-like character in our lives, and we do loving things for people that are even our enemies, that's beautiful. That's what the text is saying. So let me show you that r- real quickly. Um, the mission of the church is to, is to make disciples. Young women, they do what they do right. And then verse 5, it says, that the word of God would not be reviled. See, that, that their life and their teaching and their behavior are, are, are so powerful that, they, that it, people who watch it can't revile God's word. The young men and the pastors, verse 8, that words that can't be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say that's in verse 8 and then in verse 10 about the workers or the bond servants it says they're to be submissive to their masters and everything they're to be well pleasing they're not to be argumentative they're not to steal or pilfer they're to show all good faith and why because that adorns the doctrine or makes the truth about jesus beautiful and over and over again in this tiny book it says that so there's a power in this. It's the firefly principle that applies to everybody. The darker the night, the brighter the light shines. A pastor friend of mine in the Down River started a church, and they bought a building, which is a very, which is an old Home Depot next to Hooters. I'm like, well, that's awkward, you know. So um, he's got 
Hooters here. I knew you would listen to this story. And then there's the church right here. So the people got to drive practically through the Hooters parking lot. To, this is just fun to talk about, actually. You're like, where is he going with this? Like, how to get people to pay attention. That's what we do. And he, so he got, and I'm like, wow, that's kind of weird. You know, you've got to drive right through that parking lot to get over here. You know, it's almost like, hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'll tell you that part another day. But anyway, so... <laughs> So I, was at, I went to their church, they had a Saturday night service. Don't you just wish I had more time to talk. And they had a Saturday night service, and I went, because I was busy on Sunday morning. I went to their church on Saturday night just to see what they are up to. Uh, it was delightful to see it, you know. And, just, and, and, and one of the ladies says that night, she says, we have a ministry to the girls that work next door. We go over there, and we invite them to do their nails and to do their pedicure and their manicure. That's nails and toes, am I right? Yeah, feet, hand, that's how that works. And, 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 we, and, we, uh, and we help them, you know, with uh, sometimes some of the girls, they're single moms and they're working and they don't have much, and sometimes we help them. This church reached out to those girls to love them and to help them. This is what we're talking about. There's something about that you know is right. You know is right. They didn't just take an ad out try to shut the hooters down and condemn the people next door but they went uh, the gals went to the gals and they and they loved them and they tried to help them submissive to the, the and so is true with all of us with young older men older women young women young men pastors workers or bond servants who are submissive to their masters who are under authority who are well-pleasing who are not argumentative who are not pilfering who are showing all good faith and just look at this, it's the end of this text. Not pilfering, showing good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me just tell you, that's powerful. That is very, very powerful. This is God's plan. It works even in a, in, in, a, in a society that has lots of social evils, like our society has lots of social evils. Abortion is a social evil, right? Saying that same-sex uh, same-sex marriages are the same as Bible marriages. It's a social evil. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing, right? It's just like rebelling against God. It's redefined. This is evil. It's a social evil. Slavery and systemic injustices, they're social evils. People that are rich putting down people that are poor is a social evil, right? People saying there is no God is a social. These are all, and they, and they surround us everywhere. But in God's word, in the book of Titus, in just less than 50 verses, it actually tells us specifically how to address that. And that is, we take the gospel, which is true, and we embed it in a life that's actually changed, and we go and we do good works, and that is God's plan. Let me give you an example of that. A pastor friend of mine that I worked under, Pastor Larry Whiteford, I worked under him er, er, before I came to Jackson the first time at, at, at uh, Church in Niles, and he was so good to me, and Lois, he died a couple of weeks ago suddenly, and um, we went over to his funeral. But I noticed on Facebook that a gal that was saved in that church, Blair and Sherry Kanak, Jerry wrote a post on Facebook about Pastor Whiteford and about the Fulkerson Church. It was a big, long post. And here, here's one of the things that she said. She said, before I met Pastor Whiteford and before I went to that church, she said, I never remember, I never remember having a New Year's Eve that I wasn't just drunk out of my mind and doing things that I was ashamed of. But she says, I'll never forget the first year that I came to know the Lord and I got involved in the church, my life completely changed. I was delivered from drugs, 
and alcohol and immorality. And she said, I went to a watch night service and we were watching a film and a pastor stopped at midnight and we had communion and we all hugged each other. She said, my life was completely different after that. She said, at that watch night service was the very first time that I ever stood up and told other people openly that I was a follower of Jesus. I will always thank God for that church. I want you to get to sing before we go home. This is the Word of God song. So would you stand right now, and, uh, and the team is going to come to lead us. And while you're standing, I'm going to pray. Lord, we want to sing before we go, and we want to experience the adventure that church is supposed to be, small, medium, and large. And we want people like Sherry that we can influence for the Lord, that they would turn away from their sin, that we would turn away from our sin and find our satisfaction and even our adventure in the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.